Welcome to Grazia Life Advice, Grazia Magazine's podcast. I'm Hattie Crisell and each week I speak to women worth listening to, asking them to share six pieces of advice they really value and the worst piece of advice they've ever received. My guest this week is the journalist and author Bella Mackey. Bella's new book, Jog On, is a Sunday Times bestseller that tells the story of how, in the midst of the most difficult time of her life, running saved her from her anxiety. Bella has a brilliant and unique way of combining unvarnished honesty with inspiring hopefulness. And she's a brilliant guest with advice on making life that little bit happier, easier, and most importantly, jazzier. Before we start the interview, though, I do have a quick request. I would love to hear what you think of the podcast. I know thousands of you are listening, but at the moment, I don't know much about you or what you think. So please share your thoughts on Twitter or Instagram with the hashtag Grazia Life Advice. If you like the podcast, you can also hugely help us out by subscribing, rating it, reviewing it or sharing it. But for now, over to Bella. So, Bella Mackey, how does it feel to have reached number two in the Sunday Times bestseller list behind Michelle Obama at number one? Yeah, it's one of the weirdest things that's ever happened to me (laughs) in my life. Obviously, huge honour to be behind Michelle Obama. Also, you know, step aside, Michelle, you've had your time. Yeah, you know, come on, Michelle. Five weeks, of, you know, best-selling. We get it. You're amazing. Let some other people have a chance. But <laughs> but no, I mean, it's the weirdest, most incredible thing in the world. And I mean, I'll never get over that. And, you know, when I'm in my 80s, I'm still going to be showing people that screenshot. Like, look, I was underneath Michelle Obama. They can never take that Yeah, they can. No, you. exactly. That's it. If no one else buys the book, that's enough. Yeah. It's incredible. And it's your first book, right? It is. Yeah, it's my first book. Maybe my only book. Who knows? But... I'm sure not your only book. <laughs> Hopefully not. So the book is obviously about running, but it's largely about anxiety and how running has helped you to cope with some mental health stuff with that in mind I was wondering what this whole experience has been like for you because I can't imagine that it hasn't been a little bit stressful and anxiety making to release this book and have this kind of attention and pressure yeah no one's asked me that and it's a really good question because the book came out and I was I think I must have been nervous and not realized that I was nervous about it because I think I was sort of secretly thinking my parents will read it, my friends will read it, it's, you know, I know it's going in The Guardian and that's nice. And then I sort of thought, you know, maybe I'd sell a thousand copies and that would be really lovely. And because I didn't write it thinking that it would do anything, if you see what I mean. So when it came out and I sort of suddenly got bombarded with messages from people who'd read it or wanted advice or just were excited about the idea that someone else was talking about mental health. um, And I probably had, I don't know, maybe two or three thousand messages from people. And I sort of decided that I should try and reply to all of them so I spent a week replying to everyone and you know really awful stories sad stories hard stories and you know I'm not a professional and I think I did fall down into some kind of anxiety sort of pit for a while I spent a week sort of crying quite a lot um and my husband sort of marching me to my different interviews that I had to do and I went and saw my therapist I haven't seen for ages because I just I did feel incredibly anxious about people reading sort of the worst moments of my life and then, you know, sending me the worst moments of theirs. And it, it did just feel like I was absorbing quite a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, sad things. And yeah, I hadn't prepped for it because I'm an idiot. And, you know, I should know by now. Not an idiot. Like that. <laughs> but I, I should know, you know, I should have known, you know, the reaction to it will make you in some way feel kind of heightened sense of anxiety. And I just didn't think about it beforehand. So if you write a book and you have anxiety, think about that. Yeah. Did you feel like maybe you needed to set some boundaries around that? I did because... 
this is so LA, but when I was talking to my therapist, he said, you're not a professional. You actually might do more harm than good for some people. And you're not trained to withstand the kind of sadness that comes with some of that stuff. So I try to sort of not, I don't, I don't want to dispense any advice. Um, I try to sort of, you know, say you're not alone, but have you thought about speaking to your doctor or, you know, speaking to mind or sane or, you know, the Samaritans. Um, And I'll sort of give people sort of words of encouragement, but I I try not to go too far down kind of getting involved with sort of constant contact. There were a few people who were sort of coming back to me and back to me and back to me. And I, I sort of felt like I, you know, it's not good for either of us if I, if I can, if I do this for a bit and then drop off. So I sort of had to start doing it quite early on be quite strong about it yeah would you just um briefly for anyone who hasn't yet seen the book just give us a little summary of what they can expect from it yeah of course um yeah it's not a running book and it's not an anxiety book it's a sort of mashup of both with a bit of memoir and it's basically about how I was sort of an incredibly anxious kid and adult and got worse and worse and worse in the way that mental health does if you don't treat it properly and it got to a point where my husband left me sort of very early in our marriage and I remember just thinking oh god you know it's going to get worse I'm going to be a shut-in you know I'm not going to be able to do anything and I I one day I went for a run I mean it really was that connected and that simple that I got up and went for a run because I think I thought I just need to break out of myself for a bit and from there I realized how much it was helping with my mental health and how it sort of saved me in lots of ways. So yeah, I ended up writing a book about it. (laughs) What was it that gave you the idea and the sort of impetus to turn that into a book? Oh, nothing, because I'm really lazy. Um, I wrote an article about (laughs) it. It sounds like it, yeah. (laughs) Well, I wrote an article about it for The Guardian, and this is literally four years ago. And a publisher came to me and said, we'd love to turn this into a book. And I went, oh, okay. And as a mark of how lazy I really am, I signed the contract and then didn't do anything else again for another two years. Um, <laughs> so I was like, oh, that sounds like a strange idea. Like, I'm, you know, I can't do that. And then left my job because I realised I had six months left to actually write the book. So it was sort of lazy, but good. It was like a, I had a real hard deadline, as you understand as a journalist. Like, <laughs> yeah. you just got to get it done. So, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't plan to write a book. Um, I'm glad I have, but it was all sort of fate, really, or, you know, luck. Well, a bit of luck and a bit of having interesting ideas and a good way of expressing them and somebody recognising that. But um, I also wanted to say how much I loved the piece that you did for GQ recently. (laughs) I loved the fact that when you talked about your daily routine, there was such a nice balance of, you know, I get up and I go running and I exercise and all that stuff, which, to be honest, when I read it, I feel bad about myself. But then and then I get back and I have an ice cream. Is it an ice cream that you always have? And I thought, yes. That's, I can get on board with this. It was funny because I'd, I'd not read their sort of fitness diaries before and the week before I did it, I, I read the kind of one before me and it was, you know, someone who literally ate, you know, chicken breast with the skin cut off because, you know, the skin is fattening and, you know, drank sort of unidentifiable potions in the morning and, you know, went to bed at 9pm and I was like, oh, do they think I'm like that? Because this is going to be a shock. Like, they're not, oh God. And then I sent it in and he was like lovely about it. But, but yeah, it's a lot of kind of, I run, but... I am not, you know, an Instagram fitness person. I don't believe in sort of the cult of wellness. I'm very much into wine and and ice cream. And I think almost, I mean, I run for my mental health, but almost if I'm trying to balance things, I'll do exercise to offset all the crappy things that I do to myself, you know, like eating Mars bar ice creams. So, yeah, I'm I'm not the person to come to if you're sort of looking for abs. 
<laughs> they are not here. Okay. I mean, where are they? I, I haven't seen them. Okay. Let's move on to your advice. So the first piece is a, a classic, very comforting piece of advice. Tell me about that. So this is interesting in that I literally thought my mum made this up. <laughs> and you've just said it's like, <laughs> you know, classic. Well, not until this <laughs> moment, but I've sort of been telling people recently, you know, this is a really lovely piece of advice that my mum says. And people are like, oh, yeah, my mum says that too. And I'm like, why is my mum a fraud? Like, <laughs> I thought you made this up. I thought you were really wise. Turns out, like, she literally ripped it off a kind of Hallmark card. <laughs> But it's, I don't know where it's from originally. It's not a Hallmark card. Well, I'm fuming. I thought it was a Mackie special. <laughs> um, but it's this too shall pass. Probably not said like that, but there we go. And my mum used to say it to me when I was having sort of horrific throes of anxiety and she'd sort of shush me. And this is when I was a grown up. And she'd sort of shush me and, and say, this too shall pass. And, um, and I always thought it was an amazing kind of, it's not like cheer up or you'll feel better in a minute or, you know, get on with it. It's a very like, it will take as long as it takes for this bad period to go on, but there will be an ending to it. And I just thought, actually, it doesn't really promise anything ridiculous. It just sort of allows you a grain of hope, I think. Yeah, and perspective a little bit. Yeah, and, you know, a tiny sliver of optimism. And if you say it to yourself enough, you know, you're not sort of saying, but when, when, when will it pass? You know, you just sort of, I think, you know, my mum is quite zen about this stuff. And, you know, I don't know whether that comes with age or whether she's just like that or experienced. But she's very sort of, you're in a bad place and you will come out of it. And, you know, I'd sit there and go, when, when, you know. But I think that's the kind of advice that encapsulates sort of my mum and and her sort of, you know, sort of reasonable reaction to bad things, which is there are bad things, they will go away. And it sticks in my mind always, you know. It's one of those pieces of advice that I then pass on to other people I'm not the kind of person to try and give people advice, but I do think it's not too judgy or too kind of bossy, is it? It's yeah. just a kind of, it's a nice motto almost. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you went through a very difficult time with your first marriage and everything. Do you feel like having gone through that, you have a kind of new store of resilience in that, you know, it did pass. So next time you come into bad times, do you feel you'll be able to cope better, hopefully? I think I've coped better in the last five years with everything that's happened to me than I ever did before with anything. So, yeah, yeah, I think there was a big kind of crash in my life and lots of bad things happening at the same time. And, you know, lots of loved ones dying and husband leaving and blah, blah, blah. And I think, yeah, I think I do have the capacity now to to sort of wait it out. You know, I can, I was mentioning, you know, I was very anxious when the book came out, but, you know, I didn't stop life. You know, I carried on, I did everything in a slightly kind of fake it till you make it, you know, it will move on, it will get better. And I remember my therapist saying to me ages ago, I said, you know, I feel really angry and and surprising and I don't understand why. And he said, any emotion that you're feeling is the correct emotion for the time, which I thought was just this amazing thing of like, I don't need to worry about why I'm feeling it. It's just, this is the correct emotion for this moment. So I think knowing that, you know, it's okay to feel like this, but it won't be forever. I know sometimes it's hard to believe it. I do know that like sometimes you're just in it and you just think, oh crap, stop lying. You know, I'm going to feel like this forever. But I think experience has taught me that you do always get out of it and it does always pass. Yeah. Well, really good Mackie piece of advice. Yeah, just there. just Lindsay. That's It's only her. <laughs> um, let's move on to your second piece of advice. What's this one? So this one is again from Lindsay, my mother. Uh, they're not all from Lindsay, but um, we're not codependent. We are. <laughs> Um, but it's show up and her version of it is always make that call, which is, is basically, I think 
I've been doing it recently in a kind of mental health way, but it's basically if you think someone's struggling in any way, you know, it doesn't have to be mental health ways. It might be, you know, childcare or money or you have to turn up, you know, and that means you have to phone them or you literally have to go to their house or you have to help them out practically in a way that, you know, would be sort of greeted with relief in a way, you know. Um, Because I think, especially as we get older and we live kind of, you know, quite fragmented lives, you know, our social, our social groups are smaller, but split up. And, you know, we might have a partner, but we might be, you know, single, and you don't end up seeing the people you love as much as you used to. And I think as a result, we all tend to go, Oh, no, I'm fine. How are you? You know, I'm okay. How are you? Or we might allude to something that's happening, but sort of make a joke out of it. That's what I do. You know, something's happening. I sort of joke about it. But I think, you know, I've had a couple of messages from people saying, you know, I think my girlfriend or my friend is sad and I, you know, what do I do? Should I talk to them? And, you know, I get, I've said, like, I don't want to give people advice, but I sort of think actually, you know, if you already have an inkling that something's going on, then the worst thing to do is to kind of be polite and not do anything about it. And I think just show up is great. You know, I had a friend that was having a shit day the other day. Can I swear? Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. And, you know, she cancelled coming for a drink with me and my sister and she never cancels on going for a drink. And she kept saying, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine. You know, just I'm just not really in the mood. So we just gatecrashed her house and she sort of whispered halfway through, thank you so much for coming. You know, in that kind of, she couldn't, she just felt like she couldn't say anything or whatever it was. But we showed up and it reinforced that for me that actually you know, when I've been really miserable and someone's just rocked up, you know, my sister or someone has just showed up and not left for a bit, you know, you do feel like grateful in a way that the other person will never understand. But I think it's a really good sort of real world, not social media type piece of advice of be face to face, you know, make that call, you know, do something if you're not asked to do it. Yeah, basically. That definitely resonates with me. And my mum is also just make the call type of a person. But I think a lot of people are quite scared that perhaps you know if they ask you about the thing that they think you might be having a hard time with and you don't want to talk about it that maybe it's just better that they just leave it to you to bring it up if you want to or whatever and I I've always been the person who will barge in and be like are you sure you're okay are you upset me too um but But what's the worst reaction you've ever got to that I mean I suppose very occasionally I get someone who's like yeah I'm fine and then yeah. just doesn't want to talk about right. it. And then I have to just let it go. But at least you've asked. <laughs> yeah. You know, you've given them the opportunity. You've said bluntly, you know, are you all right? Is something going on? And if they don't want to talk about it, obviously you can't pin them down and sort of make them. But you've asked and you haven't abjugated that, you know, that responsibility and gone, oh, it's a bit awkward. I don't want to. Yeah. I sort of think that is the worst thing that can happen is they say, leave it. You know, shut up, Hattie. Just stop it. Or they burst in tears and say, oh, yeah, I feel terrible. You know, this is happening. Or, you know, but... There isn't really a third thing. No. And even if there is, and even if they do get really pissed off with you and they don't speak to you for a week, you've tried, you've asked them, you know, and if and then it's sort of on them if they if they don't want to say anything else. And also I do fundamentally believe that crying is therapeutic. So if you don't want someone to talk to you about something because you know that you're going to cry, yeah. it doesn't necessarily It's a strange thing, isn't it? Yeah. People really don't want to cry, especially in front of other people. They're just like, I don't want, I'll cry. So what? You yeah. Know? Okay, your third piece of advice, actually related, I would say. Yeah, it is related, it is. And I think I'm learning it only recently, really, in my marriage, my relationship. And I think you hear sort of old couples say it. You know, they say, keep talking. A marriage is an ongoing discussion. You know, you start on 
page one, you know, and you're 30 and, and you end up at 80 still having a conversation. But I think it, it really works with friends and siblings and everyone as well, which is if you can carry on unknotting all the problems you have and you have to keep you have to keep bringing things up, keep going over things. Me and my husband sort of check in with each other about stuff, you know, are we having a good day? Is everything all right? You know, and I did it with my sister. Me and my sister had a big dinner a couple of months ago where we sort of thrashed out some issues that... Again, like you might find uncomfortable, but once you've had the conversation, a bit like crying, you feel like utter relief and sort of cleansed afterwards in that kind of, okay, I've got it off my chest. You know, I've said that I find this thing really annoying or upsetting or, and oftentimes, you know, those discussions are so hard that we do kind of go, oh, you know, I don't want to do it. It's too awkward. It's too difficult. I mean, of course you can break a relationship like that, but I think the whole point is you don't have one blow up conversation after 10 years. You keep trying to undo the niggles you know week by week you know it's, it is a bit it's like checking in you know yeah I have a friend who is married who says to me that she thinks the kind of the good thing about her relationship is that she and her husband bicker about trivial things fairly frequently and never let anything kind of turn into a brewing resentment you know she said if he's doing something that is bothering her she'll tell him straight away and they will resolve it and and move on I mean she sounds like she's really nailed that I mean yeah she's pretty impressive yeah it's not for everyone everyone's got different confrontations yeah of course but but I just think you know the idea of of raising issues every once in a while sort of on the regular you know not not like I say every 10 years but that thing of you know just keep checking in you know have you done something to piss someone off is is there a weird dynamic going on you know do you feel like your partner's not doing the things they need to be doing around the house or because I think otherwise then you get into passag snipes and sort of little jokes that aren't funny and and I think actually having a sort of proper talk where you look into someone's eyes and you're like is everything good here yeah, yeah. um like I am by no means an expert at this this is just something I'm sort of learning now that I'm in a relationship which I hope will last the test of time you know, I sort of, I've realised that that's something you have to keep doing. I guess it's a bit like don't go to bed in an argument or, yeah. you know, there are lots of variations of that, you know, but I think it's something that I'm learning how to do. Me and my husband are learning how to do that. And I've found it quite beneficial. Yeah. Your fourth piece of advice, I love the way these all kind of flow on <laughs> from each other because I feel like this one, so it's feel the fear and do it anyway, which I think is something that people, you know, people feel scared of confrontation, but you've kind of said do that anyway so anyway tell me why is feel the fear and do it anyway on your feel list? the fear and do that anyway such a cliched like almost like 90s thing isn't it <laughs> feel the fear and do it anyway it sounds like a sort of wwe thing and i couldn't think of another way to put it when i was writing this down but um in cbt you know cognitive behavioral therapy which i sort of have done a course of you know years ago you know there is this whole thing about exposure therapy as in you know you have to confront the thing that really freaks you out. And that might be sort of something tangible like a spider, but it might also be, you know, fear of flying or or something more existential. And this is a very hacky version of this, by the way. Like, obviously, someone is going to write in and be like, Bella got it all wrong. That's not what it is. <laughs> and I have personal experience of this, which is, you know, I had panic attacks for a really long time. And every time I had a panic attack, I would stop going to the place where I'd had the panic attack. And that would be, you know, the tube, which I didn't go on for 16 years. Oh my yeah, goodness. from Millennium Eve to 2016. I feel like my quality of life was better <laughs> in that I didn't have to go on the tube. But probably yeah, your lungs are probably healthier. But, and... you know, worse in that, you know, I couldn't go anywhere. But, it, you know, it got so bad, it was places like, you know, supermarkets and, 
you know, I couldn't go to into town on my own and I didn't fly for four years. And so, you know, it really crippled me because every time I was scared of something, I would just avoid it. And what happens then is that the fear builds up and up and up. It gets worse and the idea of the thing takes on a whole new meaning. It's, you know, it becomes this incredibly terrifying place in your mind. So I sort of started doing this Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, sort of by myself, really. And I just, I sort of went, oh, sod it, I'm getting on a plane. Oh, bugger it, I'm getting on the tube. And I sort of, I sort of would work my way up to it. So, you know, the first flight I took was an hour. The first tube ride I took was one stop. You know, I trapezed because I'm scared of heights. So I was like, well, I have to go on a trapeze now. <laughs> um, and I still do it. So, you know, over Christmas, I was quite scared of driving in the dark on my own in the countryside. So I was like, okay, I have to go further today. I have to drive even more in the dark and I have to do it on dual carriageways because that will be scarier. And I'm such a coward, but I feel like it's so counterintuitive, but it, it works so well when you actually think about it. And actually, I think it's such a good lesson in life of, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, someone that's scared of flying should get on a plane to Thailand immediately, but I think there are ways in which you can be scared of something and bolster yourself and do a tiny bit of it at a time. Um, and I do think it is just the most effective way of, of not being held prisoner by your fears. Mm. What was that first time on the tube like after 16 years? Do you know what? I did a couple of things where I, I went down the escalator and was like, nope, nope, and went back upstairs. And then I did it after a run one day when I was knackered and I'd run really far. And I thought, I'll just do one stop. And my husband was like, this was like a while ago, but he said, oh, you can get on the district circle and district because they're mainly above ground so I was like okay I'll do that so I did one stop and I was kind of like this is amazing I can do this this is fine and then I tried to go on the northern line and I was like oh no I can't do this this is terrible so I had to really build it up and now I'm at a point you know a year later where I love the tube like I think it's amazing I get on it I sort of sit there bored like being sort of like I'm such a Londoner I'm so bored by the tube <laughs> um you know but no one would know that you know 16 years nothing not once yeah so you know, I did I did have to build it up in stages, but but I'm no longer scared of it, which is just the yeah. weirdest thing in the world for me. I think in a funny way, the tube is almost a kind of um kind of living monument to people overcoming anxiety because it's a very easy place to feel anxious, especially if you're in one of those deeper lines and, and it's rush hour. Deeper lines rush hour, yeah. The fact that Londoners keep doing it day in, day out. It's well it's quite a bit impressive. I mean, I feel like that about planes in that, you know, why would anyone sane get into a tin box that is going to fly across oceans with no parachutes. Why would you do that? And it's sort of testament to the fact that, you know, either we're really rational and scientific or we just are kind of slightly delusional and like, we're just going to keep doing this. <laughs> but it's a bit like after 7-7, you know, and everyone got back on the tube the next day. This kind of amazingly brave kind of, well, we've just got to do it. You know, we're Londoners and this is, it's grim, but we're just, we're just going to get on it. And, you know, that is an amazing thing because, you know, that would have been very fearful for lots of people and they and they did it anyway. Yeah, I find that really quite inspiring, actually. Yeah. So your fifth piece of advice is from a poem. Tell me about this. So it's a poem that my sister sent me a couple of years ago called Good Bones by Maggie Smith. And we actually got Greg's dad to read it at our wedding. And I won't read it for you. You should look it up, though. But... Um, there's kind of quite dark, bleak parts of this poem which kind of talk about, you know, children being smashed over rocks. And and the, the main point of the poem is that life is a very hard and brutal place, you know, and that she sort of says that I try and keep that from my children, you know, because otherwise, again, we'd sort of, everyone would grow up in fear and horror if we knew how, how cruel and terrifying the world can be. So it's quite a bleak poem in some ways. And I think there were some eyebrows at the wedding like, oh, this is strange. <laughs> but it sort of ends with, you know, 
I think she says like the world is half terrible and half good. I'm so hashing your poem. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> but the point is that, you know, she says at the end, but we can make it beautiful. Like a crappy apartment, we can make this world beautiful. And my husband started saying it to me. So it's kind of a, when the world feels shit or, you know, it's raining on a Sunday or, or something feels kind of hopeless and or a day is just going wrong, he sort of turns to me and says, how are we going to make it beautiful? And that's sort of a, a really good reminder that even on a day which is mundane and, and crappy, there is this sort of, wow, we're in the world, you know, we're alive. This is an incredible opportunity, which sounds so like, you know, positive and I'm not a positive person, but it's more just like, all right, come on, you know, the world is half awful, half brilliant. We have to choose to be in the brilliant bit today. It doesn't always work, but I think looking at it like that and thinking, how can I make my day beautiful? And that might be, you know, literally as small as buying yourself some flowers or going for a walk at lunchtime or just something which makes you kind of see the goodness in the world. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Otherwise, how the hell would we all exactly keep going, frankly? Yeah. I think that's lovely. I'm going to look that up. So that's Good Bones by Maggie Smith. Yeah, it's a really wonderful poem. Okay. Your final piece of good advice. I like this already. Always <laughs> be jazzy. <laughs> So this is advice that I literally made up myself. This is a Lindsay Mackey, like, pretending she made this up. But I did make this up. <laughs> I sort of started saying things were jazzy, I don't know, like 10 years ago. I would sort of be like, oh, that's so jazzy, you know. And by that, I mean, like, you know, I'd see a headband that had some sort of rhinestones on it. I'd be like, oh, that's jazzy. I'm sure lots of people say that. But <laughs> but in in my mind, I was like, this is a word that really describes kind of how I want to be always. So now I say always be jazzy. And people that follow me on Instagram like say it back to me now so I'm like I'm really trying to create a hashtag in that like really lame sort of like I'm a cool mum way I'm like yeah let's make it a thing but I do think like when I'm sad or anxious or or feeling down in the dumps or hungover or whatever it is you know for me it, it means you know putting on some kind of headbands or bright red lipstick or you know loads of colours and it makes me feel stronger and like I can handle things better Um, I think for other people it's like you know fabulous cushions or having a fancy cocktail or but I think jazziness in a world of kind of dreek and and grey especially in England is a good way to be and lots of people have said actually that when they did feel depressed or they did feel like they couldn't do something you know there's a long history of women sort of whacking on red lipstick and and sort of facing the day so yeah I zhuzh it up basically and try and make things look beautiful or cheering or you know something that might make someone else smile yeah. you know sometimes you see women on the street and you think god those earrings are amazing or something yeah. that thing you know where it's sort of someone else wearing something makes you feel good for a minute so I'm I'm very much jazzy like jazzy jazzy rather than like Margaret Howell yeah <laughs> I'm very much okay. like please wear 15 more things Coco Chanel said always take one thing yeah. off I'm very much like put seven more things on Right. Yeah. <laughs> so what um, recently is the kind of best jazzy thing you have acquired or seen? Oh, or I will done? tell you the most jazzy. So I was in Venice last week, which is the jazziest place in the whole world. <laughs> everything is jazzy. You know, everything is like old Italian ladies in furs and coloured houses. So Venice is like jazzy's spiritual home, I think, unless you were thinking about like Miami, I guess. Um, there are so many genres of jazz. There are. There really are. There are very, there are very many genres of jazzy. So jazzy, classy, Venice. Jazzy, not classy, but amazing are um, my wedding shoes, which I recently, they fell apart and Mulberry very kindly sent me some new ones. So I got them back yesterday and they are yellow silk mules, 
with yellow feathered pom-poms, like boudoir wow. shoes from like the 90s. And then they have mirrored heels. Oh my God. They are the zhuzhiest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I'm terrified to wear them again because I just think they're sort of slight works of art. Do you have them away in a cupboard or something or do you have them like on a bookshelf or something? Currently they are away in a cupboard but I have many shoes that are not away in cupboards and lots of headbands and and sort of earrings all over the place and there's just one room in our house which is an overspill of kind of explosion of colour and and sort of different fabrics. It's like a jazz closet. It really is. Like it's very much of a kind of, you know, budget Dita Von Tees, you know, (laughs) really like living in North London but, you know, wishing to be like that. Yeah. So yeah, and I think I'm sort of getting my husband into it as well. He wore a, a shirt with frogs on it the other day and I was like, it's very jazzy. <laughs> Good work. Um, okay, so now we come to the worst piece of advice you've ever heard. So for me, the worst piece of advice I ever had, and it's always well-meaning, but I just think it's the most unhelpful thing in the world, is don't be sad. And, you know, sort of someone that looks at you and says, oh, you know, you're crying or, you know, you're anxious or something's really bad has happened. And, oh, don't be sad or, or you know, cheer up. You oh, know, God, cheer up. Cheer up. Never. Useful. Never. And don't be sad is such a crappy thing to say to someone who has clearly shown you a vulnerable side of them. You know, someone, if you're telling them not to be sad, you already know they're sad. And I think to say that to someone who's kind of been vulnerable with you, it's hard to do that, as we've discussed. And you've said, don't be, is like saying to someone with diabetes, I don't have diabetes. You know, it's such a kind of unimaginative, useless thing to say and I think it makes people go oh right I'm not going to tell people that how I'm feeling from now on because if that's the reaction there's no point you know it means you don't understand you're not bothering to understand you just sort of want it to go away and um you know it's like it's a bigger variation of, of men that say smile on the bus you know smile love yeah. don't want a bloody smile so yeah I think you know we've come a long way with mental health stigma and, and lots more people you know especially parents message me about their children sort of explaining to me how they're trying to help an anxious child, which is amazing because, you know, when I was a child, I don't think people thought children had, you know, mental health problems. So, you know, you realise how much people are willing to learn and understand and help other people, even if they're not affected themselves. But there are still people in the world that sort of go, oh, no, don't, you know, don't be sad. Oh, it's not that bad. Or, you know, or worse, like, you know, you, but your life's great, you know. Oh, God. And I've heard it and other people have told me that, you know, their loved ones have said that to them when they've sort of finally said, I feel terrible. And it just makes me so angry. So don't do it. <laughs> yeah. And be sad. Have a good cry. Yeah. Be sad. Feel have the a good fear. Cry. Don't do it anyway. <laughs> and also, if someone does say, you know, I'm sad and you don't know what to say, then just listen. You know, you don't have to say anything. You can just listen and, and sort of be supportive and make it clear that you're going to show up. Yeah. You don't have to give advice. You can just say, I'm so sorry, you feel so terrible. You know, I'm here. Can I help? Yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. Well, thank you for an extremely jazzy set of advice. (laughs) And um, best of luck with your book. Thank you so much. Thanks so much to Bella. Don't forget to pick up a copy of Jog On. You'll find Bella in your local bookshop, probably somewhere near Michelle Obama. Don't forget to tell us what you think of the podcast using the hashtag Grazia Life Advice. See you next week for more advice from women worth listening to. Thank you.